0: Hey friends, your pal Mike Shay from Sly Flash. I was out last Sunday and which meant I didn't get a chance to do the Patreon questions from december 2022 so this is a short video i don't know how short it's going to be we'll see how long it is in which i go through the remainder of the questions the patreon questions from december 2022 if you are not a patron of sly flourish i would recommend it many people recommend it it is a really good deal you can find a link to become a patron of sly flourish down in the show notes below one of the many things you get for being a patron of sly flourish is you get access to the monthly patreon q a this is a place where you can post any question related to DD or running games and i answer every question on the patreon thread and some of them i answer right here on the show so let's dive in to the remainder of the december 2022 patreon q a questions let's take a look dm Towdenson says, I've noticed you're generally not very keen with replacing established mechanics and systems with house rules or homebrewed systems. Been watching a heckload of Sly Flourish weekly shows over YouTube. Yay. I got your core argument that substituting these require a good solid purpose, and I completely agree with that argument. But on many other occasions, you talk about making D&D your own, making the, your D&D game your own. Does that imply trimming or adding rules that go beyond the rules as written? What would you say are your top 3 rules of written rules as written from 5e that you could see yourself modifying or on the other hand that are on the verge of being changed with one DD now that you would that you would consider con, would conserve in their current format so i brought up some but let me talk about the general idea so you should feel free you well you're free to do whatever you want to do in your game if you want to change the rules of the game you can do whatever you want right nobody's the boss of you nobody's the boss of your game if it's cool for you and it's cool for your game it's cool for your friends around the table then nobody gets to tell you otherwise i'll tell you my thoughts about changing the rules and the rules for fifth edition have been very well honed and well refined over a huge play test that took place back in 2014 10 to hundreds of thousands of people played them, tens of thousands of people submitted, I think hundreds of thousands submitted feedback on them. They went through extensive reviews. And then we go in and we look at it and we're like, oh, I don't like that. I'm going to change it, which you can do. But your change that you made has not been through hundreds of thousands of players and tens of thousands of surveys and lots and lots of DMs and everything like that. So it's it's hard to look at it and say, well, we definitely, you know, we, we definitely should change that to this other thing. When you, the thing you're changing it to, you haven't really tested. Now you can test it. And again, you can test it with your group and you can test it with your friends and you can see if you dig it. And if you dig it, you dig it. You don't, you don't, you know, that's fine. But I, I tend to look at it of like the, the idea of the amount of energy that went into to the rules of the game the way they are was greater than the amount of energy that I can give to a new rule when I change it. Now, I do change things, though. I'll, I'll change things up or I'll look at things. There's definitely, I've talked about them on the show a lot of times, there's definitely areas where I look at it and I'm like, eh, I didn't really like that. I don't really like that how it plays out. Or what were they thinking with X? And there's there's definitely areas like that in the game. It's not a perfect game by any means. But I'll still change it, but I will, you you ask about what are some three, like three rules that written that I might change. And so I'll bring those up. Inspiration, this is a house rule that I have, that I use and I think works very well for me. I just give it out at the beginning of a session. Everybody starts with a point of inspiration. We begin at the beginning of a session. Generally, you don't get it back and you want to use it before the end of the session. Next session you get a new one, you only get one. And that just means I never have to worry about it. It's really easy to do. I just, everybody gets it. They all start out with it. Everybody's got this one re-roll they can do one a night. I run a three hour game game and so that during the three hours they could do it so that that works really well that doesn't it's not really good and compatible with 1D&D where there seems to be different ways to handle inspiration in 1D&D and at least in the playtest we've seen so far so I don't know where that's going another one is focusing the characters around the campaign objective during a session zero is this really a house rule No, but it's something that I like I bang the table about and I've talked about here before and the idea here is you you ideally want your players to show up without characters that are pre-built or certainly with big openings in their background and I push them really hard to essentially add a new bond to their character that ties them to the other characters and ties them to the theme of the adventure that you and your fellow supporters of the Hellriders are here to 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 keep Alturella safe or You and your fellow explorers want to serve Waterdeep by finding out what terrible curse exists in Chult. So that's sort of focusing around the characters is something that I do. It's kind of a house rule. It's not really a rule and there's no mechanics around it, but it's, it's something I push very hard for in my game. And it's something that has helped my game a lot. Another one, which is more mechanical are the abstract distances for theater of the mind combat. Now, fifth edition, this is, there's arguments about this and people be like, fifth edition is a grid based game. It's got five footsteps and all that. And I would argue a fireball doesn't fight into a grid. Fireballs don't fit into a grid fireballs are circular so are cones so you know lots of things don't fit on a grid and we abstract it right because we abstract stuff so I argue we can abstract other things when we do theater of the mind we can abstract theater of the mind so I'll do a lot of kind of you know loosey-goosey rules for combat like you can move up to the guy we're not gonna hem and haw about 30 foot movement and about six squares on a grid or whatever like that I'm just gonna let you go up you know if it's close enough you can make it which of course I'm like oh what about monks who have the extra distance what about rogues the cunning actions and stuff and you're like they can even go further, right? And they get more lenience in that in that idea. So, there's lots of little rules. I have a link, I'll link it into the show notes below, about my guidelines for theater of the mind. And they're slightly house they, they I still very much try to fit and support the combat system that exists in 5e. But I really like theater of the mind combat. I use it pretty often, and so I have sort of a layer of things on top of it that help theater of the mind work really well. You ask for a something from 1D&D, and I really love the new exhaustion rules. I love the minus one, every time you get exhaustion, it's minus one to your d twenty checks and to your dcs for your saving throws i think that's a really effective easy to remember you don't need a table for it and i think you could use it in a lot of other areas besides just general exhaustion i think you could have specters cause it when they hit you i think vampires could give you two levels of it when they hit you you could use it as sort of that life drain level draining mechanic from the oldest versions of D. you could put it in place now and it's easy to remember and it doesn't totally screw characters over because it's just it's minuses it's a lot like minus one minus two minus three it can be a lot but it doesn't totally disable characters like the current exhaustion rules are so i really like that that's when i would drop right in place and i would probably use it in lots of places i would use it for a lot of life training scroll for initiative asks one of my players has recently acquired a rod of rulership it's surprisingly powerful he's been able to charm large mobs of drow troglodytes bullywugs. the dc is relatively high for mooks and the area of effect is huge how would you handle this for combat in particular when a player has a small army at their command I played in a game recently where I was a player in the game and one of the characters got a rod of rulership and the way that the the DM handled it is the DM knew how it was going to fit into the game. He understood that we were going to have this thing and he would put situations in there where he could use it to command a whole group of people who are kind of previously our enemy and use them in a big political move in the campaign itself. So it wasn't so much about us having a bunch of people that would follow us around and go into battle. It was about commanding this group to not go to war with the group we we're defending. So as a DM, I would, I would, there's a few things you could do. One is I would sit down with your players and I would say, Hey, You're definitely going to be able to use this thing, but it's going to be impractical to use it to have a small army follow you around through the corridors while you're doing stuff. Instead, you can use it to command a large large group of people to go do other things for you. So if you have large groups of troglodytes as a DM in the story, you want to put positions where they can use that small army of troglodytes to work with them, to do other things for them, to take over other evil places or to help fortify a city. Give them give them ways to, to do this stuff, but make it pretty clear to the characters that the intent isn't for you to bring a bunch of people with you on a mission, that that's not really going to work out and and talk to them as players about it Say so in the game. It would make sense but just for our game it's not it's just not practical so instead do you have this group yes you do and they work for you yes they do but give them big commands that let them do things off camera so we can keep the focus on the characters and i think if you you know i think one i don't know if it'll work but when you talk to your players hopefully they understand that yeah having 38 turns of all of our drow captured or all of our commanded drow warriors going isn't really practical maybe you let them have like one or two maybe they have a couple of bodyguards that they follow maybe you negotiate with the player and say how would it be be if a couple of these drow did stay with you but all of the rest and it's through them that you command the bigger army but you still have these two henchmen that kind of go with you i think that might be a way Fresh to... s says my player recently had a powerful item stolen from them and their cleric cast divination to help the group find it unfortunately i mis- misinterpreted the divination request and told them how they could best get the item if they wanted to find it immediately however they what they meant was that they wanted to find it through the safest way to retrieve the item and needless to say the current they're currently about to take part in a pretty dangerous encounter with one of the heads of the caustic heart critical Rolls version of the cult of the dragon with their resources pretty depleted and they're about to roll initiative in the session many of them felt like there was no option except this one and they're worried that they're going to lose the characters i thought i was giving them the options i'll take too long to explain trust me but they were under the impression that i was only giving them the one lose-lose option I cleared it up with them after the fact, but I really wish they had told me earlier that they felt railroaded, despite the fact that I made it clear that I'm not into railroading players and I give them regular survey asking for their opinions. What should I do? Well, I bet you by the time you're seeing this, you've already accomplished whatever it is you were going to do. So hopefully it worked out for you. But in general... Yeah, that's when you you have a situation where through divination they learn about a thing, I think the only thing that maybe you could have done is make it clear to them that that is a dangerous path. If the God says, here's this path and it's dangerous. Now, I think divination, maybe you're only going to see the one path, but you might give them three. You might say, well, there's three different ways you could do this, but they're all dangerous. They all have their risks. You know, you could, you could kind of throw an option like that out, but I think generally players want options. So maybe you reinforce them, hey, the god told you this one, but you also know that these other two exist. And I think like having three options is always really good, especially if you don't have any one option you think they're absolutely gonna take. And instead you're like, no, those other ones are viable options, like really viable options. Like you could, you could run the game if they chose those paths. So I think that it helps you to clarify to them what paths they have available, what options they have available. And I think that that can can work pretty well. But it sounds like they, they really only felt like they had the one. I hope it ended up working out. And I think you're doing other great things. You're talking to them about it. You're explaining it. Uh, they're explaining how they feel and you're not like oh this is what was me this is the worst thing ever and the fact that you're even surveying them and talking to them and being, you know asking them how they feel about this I think you know hopefully it worked out and hopefully everybody learned a little something Jasmine says your way of difficulty calculation for combat is very helpful is there an easy way to calculate the difficulty increase when the party has companions for example from a bag of tricks or an NPC with a, with a, with a challenge rating so the challenge rating thing that Jasmine is talking about is actually in the lazy DM's companion there's also a link on my website about it I go Back and forth between the lazy the lazy encounter benchmark or the deadly encounter benchmark I think I'm leaning now towards the lazy encounter benchmark it's in page it's on page 30 under lazy DM combat encounter and it really is this this whole thing follows two ideas one is you build your encounters around what makes sense in the story what kind of monsters make sense for the situation how many monsters make sense for the situation and then you want to determine am I getting into the red zone is this going to be hard this is going to be too hard. And for that, we have a very simple bit of math that we can use called the deadly, called the lazy encounter benchmark. And the lazy encounter benchmark works this way. An encounter may be potentially deadly. You're in the red. If the total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the total of all character levels. Or one half of character levels if the characters are above fifth level. So if you have four ogres, the ogres are challenge rating two. You have a group of four fourth level characters. You add up all of the character levels, which is sixteen, and you add up all of the ogres, and that's eight. And you would find out because they're fourth level, that is d- almost twice deadly. That's almost that's you're definitely in the red in that circumstance. I have a link to all this if that's not make any sense. So you can take a link in the show notes below. So Jasmine's question is, well, what happens if you have things like NPCs? or you have summoned monsters you have other things that you're using and the answer is you know there's a couple different ways to tweak the dials on this so there isn't a specific thing like you know you should you should add it but there are a couple of different ways you can handle it. one is you could pretend that the characters are a level higher than they actually are you can calculate it as though the characters are a higher level that is a big knob you turn that that knob things are going to get escalate very quickly especially when you go from like four to five or if you're using the higher scaling capabilities here, if you go from like 10th to 11th level or 16th to 17th level, there are big jumps in those levels in particular, but there's pretty big jumps even level based. But if you're finding that while wow, those encounters that I thought might be deadly are actually really easy, you could just sort of treat them as though a level higher. But another way that's a slightly, a, a smaller dial that you can turn on this is just increasing the number of characters. Treat them as though they have one more character. You can even do this if they don't have an NPC, but one character is really powerful and really effective. Maybe you have a circle of the moon druid, and the circle of moon druid is really really effective they, they just they, they almost count like two characters even though they only have one set of actions they have so much stuff they can do they count as two so you can increase slightly increase the challenge the, the, the whole calculation here by just treating them as though there's one additional character it's still going to jump the notch up but it works otherwise you might just ignore it otherwise you might just keep in the back of your mind well they do have a bag of tricks but again the number one thing to remember about this whole lazy encounter benchmark idea is that it is a loose gauge it's not perfect by any means it's a very loose gauge it offers a rough approximation that you're just churning dial. you do not it is not a really hammered down specific thing it is meant to be a loose guideline which means maybe you just don't even you just ignore the fact that they have npcs but if you find that it's not really helping you when you're doing the math you can just add a character it's probably the easiest thing to do Brooke Control says, my group maneuvered into a difficult position. In the next session, they might get captured by the villain. I would like to be prepared for that situation. I want to give them opportunities to escape or to talk themselves out of prison. However, I don't want to put the leads directly before their nose. But on the other hand, I also don't want the situation to become a downer for the happiness of my group. Even if they cannot escape, there should be something to hold on to. A light at the end of the tunnel. No? Yes. The answer is there should be a light at the end of the tunnel. Being captured is a big downer. If, they, if the players think you did it on purpose that they didn't have a chance other than to be captured, it's a real downer. That's, something, that's one of those traps. There's a few DM traps, common things that DMs do that are not really great for the fun of the game. And one of them is the force capture. Oh, wouldn't it be fun if they got captured and then they had to break out? No. like It's not bad if they get up into that situation and it happens. That's one thing. Having that as a, as a potential way for a battle to not be a TPK... That's fine. Forcing that, never, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna never a good idea. I'll never say never, but it tends to go poorly. We'll go with that. So the fact that you're saying they might get captured, you're already you're already above the fold. you're, you're already doing okay. But even if they do, it's still a factor and your players might still resent you for doing it, even if it w- was something they could get out of. So you want to keep up with that. I think it's fine. I think having multiple ideas about how they might be able to escape is good. Having ways that they could talk their way out, fight their way out or explore their way out. Think about the pillars and think about different, think about the look at the characters. Think how would this character try to break out? Do that for each of them and maybe throw a few ideas, few secrets and clues. And I would lean towards projecting those options more than I would hold them back. I would not worry so much about them having to find those options because they might just end up going with the first one and think that there wasn't any other way to do it. So I would, I would lean in towards telling too much rather than telling too little. But your, your head's in the right place. You already know that there needs to be a light. You already know it's a downer and you didn't force the situation in the first place. So you're in a very really good spot in my opinion. Peter S. says, if you buy a new RPG with new core rules and different settings, how do you approach GMing a game without having prior experience as a player in the same game? I have the feeling I would always fall back to D&D style adventures. That is a good question and i ran numenera right it's a system i had run before but i I hadn't played a lot of it and then i played a big numenera campaign and in many cases many of the situations ended up very much like DD. i would actually say that numenera is kind of built that way that it is built for group adventuring if you think about any rpg we have a group of people and they all have a role and there's four or five of them and it's kind of a fantasy world maybe a science fiction world and they're going off and doing adventures that that's still going to feel like DD. i remember somebody was talking about the blade runner rpg and i was like well blade runners are always alone like Like if you look either of the two Blade Runner movies, it's one Blade Runner and they're by themselves. How do you play a group game? And I guess the RPG has a group game, but it's still I bet you it still feels a little bit like a DD and d game when you have five, five people going off on an adventure together. So I wouldn't worry too much about that unless the game itself is really designed not to be that way. And then you want to understand what the game is intended to do. I wouldn't beat yourself up for running games that feel similar to D&D. One big tip I have is try to get the rulebook in the hands of your players and count on them to help you out with this stuff. That let everybody kind of learn the game together. The same way you do with like a board game, right? Everybody should be sitting around learning it together and I did that both for Blades in the Dark and I did that for Numenera and in both cases I had players who knew more about the game than I did and that was cool because it also meant we're on the same page, we're all enjoying the same story it's not the DM over here and the players over there you're all working on it together. I think it really helps to have everybody learning the rules and working together with you and with each other to understand the game. So that's probably my biggest tip is really lean on your players to help you understand the the new game that you're running as well. Andrew C says, I ran a combat in my last session using Brother Cavill stat block. It was great. Brother Cavill is a stat block that is available in the City of Arches, a source book that I have available to patrons of Sly Flourish. Again, link in the show notes below. Join the Patreon. It's really cheap, and you too get the City of Arches, and you can get the stat block for Brother Cavill, and he's badass. Badass, legendary priest, evil assassin priest. Very cool. Based on Daniel Craig from Elizabeth, the movie Elizabeth. I ran a combat in my last session with Brother Cavill. I found myself in a position to go for the kill, but I hesitated as I felt bad for my players that they might lose their characters. I know I need to discuss character death with my players, but any advice on how to get over that hesitation to kill the characters? No. I don't... I have the same hesitation, and I don't like it either. And I, I don't... I think that the whole, like... You know, D&D is important and it's important to kill characters to show them that they have that threat. I think that's I think many people overweight that that need. I think putting characters in danger is important. I think the threat of a kill is probably important, but actually doing it. I've done it, but I haven't done it a lot. Because I don't like killing characters either. And I don't think it's ever really great. Like when I, especially with characters where you're doing a lot of character driven stuff, people like their characters a lot. And fifth edition characters are very meaty, they have big backstories, they have lots of stuff going on, and nobody really wants to lose them. They remember them. And I, you know, so I think. I would give them lots of chances to try to get out of it. I would come up with other ways to have defeat other than them being dead. Or if you know that they have access to things that can bring them back to life, if you've got people with Revivify, if you have scrolls of raised dead, if they have local churches they can go to, then it's not so bad because they can do something. Because the other big problem I have with this is, what do you do with the player? There's a player sitting there, their character's dead. They, what, are, what are they doing there? They're just bored, right? And so, they're, or they're, they're not just bored, they're bored and mad, and that's even worse. So I'm not saying like, oh, we shouldn't ever kill characters, but I don't I don't think we should shy away from the idea that it's okay to pull our punches a little bit. Again, if it's really overt, I think if it's clear to everybody that the character was gonna die, I think the character needs to die. But I think if you can do things to kind of make it a little less likely... So that and they and the players won't know. I think that's okay. There's probably a bunch of people like, oh, that's the worst thing ever. You're the worst. I can't believe you you suggested that. You're the worst guy ever. Well, okay. Like and there's other opinions, right? And we lo- lots of people have other opinions. But I'm I'm hesitant. I am hesitant like you, and I don't know that you should worry about it that much. I think that hesitation is okay because I think it could be for many groups it could be a real downer. Even if they say, oh yeah, no, it's cool. We want a more lethal D and D game. That's great until their character dies. And I definitely have had that happen where I describe the lethality and everybody was into it until their character died and then they're pissed. So worth worth considering. So don't beat yourself up for not killing characters. Hussein B says, I'm a fan of the idea of fatal combat, similar to Mortberg or 5e hardcore mode. Do you believe the idea of tweaking monster dials can be enough to achieve this result without house rules? As a starting point, I'm considering half monster hit points and double monster damage. Double mo- um, double damage would make monsters hit more deadly, while half hit points would balance the fight and make the PCs deadly themselves. Is this too extreme, or is this within the intended idea of tweaking monster stats? A, I love the fact that the one above was like, I feel really bad about killing my characters, and this one's like, how do I stab them harder? but it's cool, right? We all have different styles. That's cool. If you're having hit points and doubling damage, that's going to have one effect. If you really want it to be deadly, there's a rule I had heard bantered about that I thought was really cool. And the idea was your death saves, you only have a limited number of them, period. You do not get them back. After a short rest, you do not get them back or whatever the rule is for how you get them back. You don't get them back. You start off at first level with three and you get one for every level that you have. So you actually start off with four at first level. You get another one at second level and so on. But every time you use up a failed death save, you do not get it back. And the cool bit about that is the characters, the players know when death is really coming for them. They know like I've only got one death save left. And if I lose it, I am dead. There might be some cool last action that they can take. There might be something neat that they can do. I think that that will make the game more deadly, but it also kind of puts it in the hands of the players. Your other things about tweaking the dials, you can tweak the dials however you want. Again, go back to the the basic ideas of why we tweak the dials. you want things to be a little bit harder, increase damage. You want the threat to be higher, increase damage. Doubling damage, I wouldn't make that just a straight rule. I would keep your hands on the dial and see. You know, you really want to increase damage, give them more attacks. Instead of doubling the damage, just give them more attacks a turn. And that will accomplish much of the same thing thing same with hit points tweak the hit points as you see as you need but i wouldn't make like a hard rule that like you should always play with half hit points and double damage instead if you want a house rule one that you can talk to your players about the one that really makes it deadly Think about that limited death save idea, limited failed death saves. You only get so many failed death saves. And after that game's over, Adam G says now that Kobo press is ending the warlock patron. I'm very sad about this, by the way, I just, I learned about that last week. Kobo press is no longer going to be doing the warlock patron. It is a patron that I had supported for years. Really good stuff, really tremendous stuff for the value for the cost. I can understand why they had to take it down because they were actually sending physical books out to people. I can't imagine a patron sending physical books, but they they were and they did it for a long time. So I'm very sad to see it go, but Cobalt Press has tons of other stuff. I'm huge, still big, big fan of Cobalt Press. Love their work. Do you have any suggestions for another monthly one-shot type Patreon to subscribe to? Yes, I have three. Elvin Tower. Elvin Tower is a cartographer I have worked with in the past. He's done a lot of maps for other products that I've put out. And he has an excellent, excellent Patreon that is mostly focused on maps, but also offers up adventures, whole adventures that you can do and has really, really good uh, really good adventures like whole adventures that you can run groups of the stuff that he can put together and tons and tons and tons of VTT maps. So really outstanding stuff. You get more cartography based but definitely has whole adventures that you can that you can enjoy. CZRPG, my friend Christian Zuck, also has a similar Patreon. And in his Patreon likewise you get access to mostly maps, lots and lots of maps, but he's also been packaging them together into groups into adventures that you can that that you can run. So lots of lots of good things there. Really beautiful work coming out of CZRPG. So that is another Patreon that I would consider. And the third is no stranger to anyone, which is MCDM. MCDM puts out Arcadia every month. Arcadia is a fantastic magazine, RPG magazine, beautiful covers, really, really highly produced magazine, awesome stuff. If you're not, if you don't belong to it, it's a little pricey on the $10 a month side, but boy, you can see where the $10 goes. It's a really amazing product. So I would definitely check it out. So those would be the three Patreons. I, I subscribe to all three of those. I subscribe to a whole bunch of Patreons, but those are the three Patreons that I think offer very similar material to what Kobold Press was offering with Warlock. Big full color maps, beautiful products, lots of really good stuff. So Adam, check those out. Ren D says, what would be your approach in tuning a creature, turning a creature into an undead variant? The main quest in my current campaign will be centered around the undead. Obviously, there are lots of undead creatures to choose from for encounters, but I suppose any creature could be undead, right? Undead Displacer Beast, undead Rakshasa, undead Mimic. How would you stat zombie variant versus normal creatures? So it's actually a couple things. One is easiest, the lazy one, just call it undead. To say it's the type undead you don't you don't need to do anything else to change it you can just say this is an undead dragon just like you said undead displacer beast it's a displacer beast that's undead and then allow things that that have an effect with undead to have an effect with the displacer beast you're pretty much good to go there's a little variance in like the fact that it can breathe or might be immune to poison there's other little things that you might pick up but generally speaking you could just call it undead, and it's undead. The thing you bring out, though, how would you stat a zombie variant of a normal creature? In chapter 9, in the D- in the Dungeon Master's Workshop, I think it's under Create a Monster. And they have a table in here called Monster Features. It's kind of hidden. There's a lot of really, really good stuff hidden in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Don't forget about the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's really, really good. The features is not what it's talking about. And you have this NPC features trait. Now the idea here is I think you could take these and apply them to any of the NPC stat box, but you can really use them on anything. And they have zombie. So zombie, it shows you how you can modify the ability scores, plus one to strength, plus two to con, minus six to int, minus four to whiz. You You can do that if you want. Could also not worry about it. And it shows you that it's got the undead fortitude trait. Immunity to poison damage can't be poisoned. Dark Vision 60 can't speak and understand. So it gives you a very little information that you can throw on top of any stat block and make a zombie version. This would be that. I don't know that I would worry too much about applying all this stuff. The undead fortitude is important, and the rest you can kind of improvise. It has the fact that it has dark vision, the fact that it can't be poisoned. And his immunity to poison damage and the undead fortitude trait—that's really going to make your zombie. Now you can actually do this with stuff other than the zombie. Skeleton is here as well. What do you what do you add to something to make a skeletal version? Vulnerability to bludgeoning damage, immunity to poison damage, and exhaustion. Blah 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 blah. The other thing you could do is basically take any other monster stat block and pull out whatever trait, whatever mechanical trait makes that monster unique. An example would be a ghoul. What if you wanted a ghoul displacer beast? There's no ghoul in here, but you can go to the ghoul monsters. And you could say, "I'm. you're just going to take this part of it. You're just going to take that the creature other than an elf that's undead must succeed in DC 10 con save or be paralyzed for a minute. Just take the ghoul's paralyzing effect and add that to a displacer beast. You'd have a really cool displacer beast, really dangerous one, that's paralyzing people as it's smacking them with its tentacle. And then other than that, give it the undead trait. And you're set. You want to make it a little weaker? Maybe lower its hit points and have some of its ribs hanging out the side make an undead variant so it's really easy to do it's something that i think we need it feels harder than it should be it feels like oh that's going to be really tough to make an undead and then you know it's just make it undead just call it undead and you're good undead fire giant take a fire giant and say it's undead say this is a skeletal fire giant it's now a skeletal fire giant it's a big skull you could add the skeletal traits but you might not maybe the vulnerability to bludgeoning is too much don't even worry about it. just call it let's call it something spectral variants Tiny little changes you can make to make a specter. Go to the specter stat block. Just pull out the key pieces of the specter and add it to whatever monster you want to apply it to. Really, really easy to do. Kilvar says, Do you think you'll be participating in the Dungeon 23 Challenge? The idea is presented on a few YouTube channels, but it's basically creating one room of a 12-floor mega dungeon per day. By the end, you'll have a huge complex outdoor area or other location area with 28 to 31 rooms per level. As a matter of fact... I have my little Dungeon Twenty Three notebook, which I set up a few days before New Year's, and I have been adding my little day. It is the fifth on this recording, and I just added day five earlier to my little dungeon. Yes, I am doing Dungeon Twenty Three. I am enjoying it. I've, I one of the things that I, I think is kind of critical is I gave myself permission to fail at this. Making a commitment to do a thing every day for a year—that's a big commitment—and I got a lot of things to do. I'm like, you know, I'll give it a shot. Why not? We'll give it. A, it's easy to do. So I'm also making it really small. And I'm giving myself permission to suck at it. So it's not clean by any means. It's, it's dirty stuff. I'm still willing to put it out there so you can find it on my Mastodon account. You can find it over on the Slyflourish Discord server. I post it every day along a bunch of us on the Slyflourish Discord server. We have a little Dungeon 23 channel where we talk about it and we could show off our stuff. But one thing is, like, it's not good. Like, this is, you know, I wouldn't sell this. Right. I mean, I could clean it up and maybe it turns into something, but I also don't know where it's going to go. Now I'm doing mine in the city of arches. I wanted, I had this idea and it's called the core. My dungeon is called the core. And the idea of the core is because I was like, wouldn't it be interesting if you took one of those big, like Antarctic core samplers and you ran it through the city of arches from the top of the mountain, all the way down to its lowest depths. And then you pulled it out. What would be in that core? What would that look like all these layers that you'd have and all these different things and some of them are like well this is where everybody goes shopping and this is where the undead overlord lives way down at the bottom and this is like whatever's going on up here so i was like wouldn't it be cool to have like this slice and i was like that's going to be my dungeon 23 ideas this this dungeon called the core it's known about in the city of archers people oh yeah the core yeah you don't want to go there you you did fall down a hole and you end elsewhere right you end up in bad places so yeah i've been working on it i really like the idea if you want to learn more about dungeon 23 if you don't know what the hell that is and i'm pretty you know this effect that it started, you can just start whenever you want. Don't don't hang on to the rules too so tight. Even the guy who made it. So Sean McCoy, who I believe is responsible for starting the whole idea of Dungeon 23, he talks about it and he's like, Don't go, don't go hard on yourself. It, we all recognize that like doing a thing a day, every day, that's a huge for a year, that's a big commitment. Go easy. It doesn't have to be a dungeon. Some people are like, look, I'm going to be able to skip a few days. Go ahead and skip a few days. No one's doing this. You're not doing it for anybody. You're doing it for yourself. This is something you do. It's not a contest. You're not comparing yourself to anybody else. I'm just doing a little sketch in my notebook. It's not a big deal. I do, what I do is I pick a room, I draw that room, I put a little number down, and I write three interesting features of that room, and I'm done. It takes me usually less than five minutes a day. And I'm not saying you should go do it. I'm not. If, you, if, if this is like too OCD for you, don't don't bother. But yeah, I'm trying it out, and we'll see. And maybe maybe we'll turn it into something. Maybe I'll turn it into something. I don't know. We'll see. But cover, yeah, be cool. And if you want to see more, and you want to see the stuff I'm doing, again, not special, not any better than anybody else is doing. Many of them that I've seen are incredible, and way better than mine. But it doesn't matter because they're not comparing it. And But if you want to see more, we have in the Sly Flourish Discord server available to patrons of Sly Flourish. You can find a channel. It's a what a thread where we talk about Dungeon 23. We've been posting stuff every day. You can also support me by picking up my books over on on the Sly Flourish bookstore. And if you want a weekly D&D related article sent directly to your inbox along with an adventure generator PDF for free, costs you nothing at all, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Links for all of those are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.